0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at CGIBurlington.org. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Good to uh, see everyone here and uh, certainly welcome uh, visitors as well as congregants alike I'm uh, glad everyone made it. I barely made it on time myself. That traffic was horrendous. It took me an hour and a half just to get here from Leslie Street and 404. If you know where that is, 404 and Leslie, which is a little north of Toronto, of course, uh, over there by the, uh, the what is that, the um, Don Valley Parkway, that area over there. Hour and a half. I thought for sure, an hour, hour and a half, I'll get here with plenty of time to spare. But uh, it turned out that it was uh, quite a challenge to, uh, to get here on time. Good to be with all of you. Uh, the greetings I bring to uh, all of you as well, uh, those of you visitors as well, uh, from our Infuse group, which is our young people. They're having a weekend of uh, just uh, seminars and outings. Uh, yesterday they spent the whole day in Toronto, uh, tramping around through the city, riding the uh, trolleys, going up and down the subways and on buses. They tried to uh, also help with some food bank there uh, for the day as well, but it turned out that they didn't need their help, so they had a little extra time (laughs) to spend uh, walking around Toronto. But uh, overall, they're having a good time there in Toronto today, uh, probably about, uh, what, 20, 25 miles west of here uh, with the congregation over there off Bayview Road, which we have another congregation there that uh, meets every Saturday as well. Well, I don't want to uh, preamble here Too long, because we're short on time, as we always do, because I say that due to the fact that I've got a big subject. This is a big subject, and it is so big that I've divided it up into two parts. So I'm going to kind of wet your whistle a little bit uh, here at the beginning to get us started, and then I'm going to kind of follow it up uh, with an additional perspective that hopefully will help clarify a little bit of what you're going to be introduced to today. Because it is different. It is different from the traditional Christian motif of what we've been taught as being the reward of the saved or the destiny of human beings and where we go after we die and even, for that matter, the state of the dead. Because all of these things are touched on when you begin to explore this particular topic about heaven. Now, with that being said, I understand as well, and I was listening a little bit on and off with respect to some of the topics that have uh, already previously been presented over the period of time that this event uh, endeavor here of the congregation in Burlington have engaged themselves in, and they have covered two subjects that are quite underscoring ...to the topic that I'm going to be speaking on today as well. They are very, very related in many respects. The Trinity Doctrine, and whether or not there is a Trinity, and of course the nature of God. These two teachings, in the way that they're taught by the vast majority of traditional Christianity, oftentimes serve as obstacles, blocks, obfuscations that are oftentimes used to hide and bury the real rich, deep truths of, of the Bible. So I'm glad that those two topics have been covered previous because hopefully they've laid some groundwork whereby some of these obstacles, especially these two, have been somewhat neutralized from that standpoint as far as uh, their validity because there's a lot of history associated with where they came from Uh, how they're characterized, and frankly, until you begin to understand that the Bible does not teach, does not teach that God is some defineless conundrum, like a trinity that's even almost in some ways convoluted to understand, as a matter of fact, many priests will tell you, you aren't intended to understand it. It's not meant to be understood. As a matter of fact, some will even tell you if you do understand it, that's sacrilegious. (laughs) You're not supposed to. You know, In spite of some of the scriptures that say that God wants to be understood. He wants to. He says, even my Godhead, and I'm sure that scripture was covered there in Romans, I think it is chapter uh, 1, where he says he wants to be understood. Even his Godhead, which is really about his nature and what uh, he is defined as. He wants to be understood shared with us in the proper understanding. Sadly, there has been a very big movement from the time of the Garden of Eden, frankly, you could make the case, which we will, because we're going to be going back and visiting some of these scriptures, uh, of which where these Genesis uh, ideas have come from. But with that being said, I wanted to, um, I'm in deep trouble, interrupt myself for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) I think I left my glasses in my car, so if you could be kind enough to to go get them, I'd sure appreciate it. I think they're uh, in the center council, I think. Or maybe, Murray, they fell out, and they might be in the back uh, seat on the floor. They may have fallen out. Sorry about that. But I do want to uh, take a a particular tact here today and turn with me to the book of Ephesians first. The book of Ephesians is a very interesting book. It has a lot of information in it. As a matter of fact, we're just going to really touch on some very very superficial points that this book contains and of which uh, the topics that Paul covers here Uh, which are a multitude in in number. Now uh, I'll have my guidance here (laughs) in addition to, hopefully, God's presence. I appreciate your patience on that. Uh, Here in uh, Ephesians, that is, Ephesians and in chapter 1, I want to give you just a little bit of preliminary information before we proceed with what I really want to focus on here. Because it's really important that you understand that the gospel itself, the gospel itself is a multi Faceted message. It has a lot to say. When you say, you know, the gospel of the kingdom, yes, it's the gospel of the kingdom. But it's also about the gospel of Christ crucified. It's about the gospel of the fact of the good news that Christ, for the first time, came to earth, the Son, the Word, made manifest in the flesh to reveal, for the first time in the history of mankind, the Father. See, because in the Old Testament, it was still kind of mixed up. You know, there, was a, there wasn't clarity until Jesus came and was manifested and incarnate for the 33 and a half years that he was. The clarity, distinction, the plainness of the relationship of the Elohim, the Godhead, was really somewhat um, ambiguous at best, if I could use that term. Here in the book of Ephesians, Paul... Touches on another aspect of the gospel. And in passing, it doesn't really, it's not a main portion of the book of Ephesians, but it certainly uh, is part in the course of his dialogue here as he wrote these uh, six chapters to that church there in Ephesus. Here in verse 5, I'm just going to hit some high points here real quick to get to, uh, for the sake of time, to get to some areas that I want to get to. Having predestined us to the adoption of children by Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, Paul introducing to us that we're part and parcel to a predestinated plan by which adoption is inclusive, and that this whole event of what God is doing on planet Earth has to do with, and this goes back to what you, I hope, begin to understand, that God, I'm going to use a term here that would be so foreign to most traditional Christians that they would probably, like uh, the V8 commercial hit me on the head. You know, you should have taken a V8 because uh, they would say I was nuts in saying this, but I'm going to say it, and that is God is reproducing himself. See, most people think reproducing himself. What do you mean by that? What are, you, what are you talking about, reproducing himself? But he is, brethren and friends, he is reproducing himself, and this threat, this theme is threaded consistently Throughout the Bible, whether it becomes a main subject in the course of the dialogue of the writing that you might be reading, whether it be from uh, the book of uh, Matthew through Revelation in the New Testament or whether it's from Genesis to, to Malachi in the Old, the fact of it is this theme of God reproducing himself and bringing mankind into a familial, a family, a paternal environment is consistent. It's a continuum throughout the whole Bible. Sadly, and unfortunately, in traditional Christian circles, that whole picture, that whole concept is missed because of tradition and the influences of many like Plato and Socrates, the Hellenistic movement that occurred so many years ago uh, that influenced many of the Jewish thought and, and much of the concepts of God and the afterlife and uh, many of the things that we today have adopted through the Catholic Church and then down to through the Protestant movement uh, that it still has been just carried on. But Paul goes down through here, talking about Christ, talking about the destiny of humankind. He says in verse 13, In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the down payment, it's the earnest, it's the preamble, it's the down payment of your inheritance... Until the redemption of the purchase, something's going to be redeemed from uh, by God from you. And it's going to be you. That's the, that's the whole message. You're going to be redeemed. And the, and the thing of it is here, he says, until the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Dropping down here to verse uh, 17, that God of our Lord Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of him, that your eyes, the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened that you may know what is the hope that you may know so that your eyes, this is the purpose, your eyes would be enlightened so that you may know what is, he says here, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. God has a hope for all human beings. He has a hope for all human beings to achieve a certain condition. I could even even use the word status, but he has a plan, a hope, a desire that is inclusive of this calling of which when you're uh, when you're part of it, you become adopted into this predestined plan that he put together. And we're told in Timothy before the world was even before the world was, in a prehistoric time, prior to planet Earth becoming what it was in Timothy, we're told that they, bade, and we understand it's they, Elohim, the family of God, the Word and the Father together, engineering, designing this program we know as and understand as the term salvation for us to be part and parcel to this family. And he says here that your eyes... Your understanding and enlightened that you may know what the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is exceeding uh, greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he showed or illustrated which he wrought which he which he revealed that says here in Christ notice this now when he raised him. In other words, there's a point here that Paul wants all of us to understand, and it's important to grasp. Yes, we should model our lives after Jesus. Yes, the characteristics of which Christ stands for, the values and the standards and all the things that he himself represents for us to model for and connect with and begin to inculcate to and merge our personalities with, absolutely, we should be doing that. That's a given. That's an absolute. That's what the calling into the whole Christian movement, into the whole Christian way, they used to even call it the way. They didn't even call it Christianity. They called it the way. That whole thing was predicated on and premised on us modeling our lives after Christ and via the Holy Spirit ingratiating ourselves to him in a relationship by which in our natural nature becomes sequestered and more of his nature comes forward. But... That's part of it. That's not all of it. What Paul is addressing here in passing, he doesn't make an issue out of it, but he wants us to take a note here. He says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him. He didn't say, which he wrought in Christ as he lived. No, no, in this particular case, in the context that Paul's talking about, he wants us to focus on something here, that there was some glory and power and something for us to recognize as our inheritance that is associated with the manifestation, the the event of Christ being resurrected from a physical human being into something that he called, Jesus did, spirit. That is the ultimate conversion, brethren. The conversion of our character is the phase one of what we should be involved with now. But the phase two of what God wants us to be excited about, what he wants us to capture as our vision for life, is to be able to obtain that born-again experience. And I'm not talking about a little Twitter patient about, oh, I love the Jesus, oh, I love the Lord, you know. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that really manifests itself in some substance, substance of which it intrinsically becomes a biological, metabolical change of your flesh that was personified, wrought, illustrated, and revealed in the resurrection of Christ, of which He, Jesus, said that that is our inheritance. He goes on here, which he brought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand and in heavenly places. Now, chapter 2 and so forth goes on. He talks about uh, the Old Testament a little bit and some things about being saved uh, by grace and comes down into chapter 3 of which he reveals a mystery that most of the Jews at the time were not getting but of which was always intended from day one. And that was that the Gentiles would be grafted in too. And that through Christ, the racial element factor would be eliminated. And that now, through the faith of Christ and the circumcision of the heart, anybody, non-Israelite, and I don't only mean Jews, because as you know, the Jews, yes, they are Israelites, but they by far do not define all the Israelites. They are one tribe of 12. So when I say Israelites, I mean now Christ cuts across all barriers. And whether you're a Greek, whether you're a Scythian, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter because gender doesn't stop this process either. If you repent, get baptized, accept Christ as your personal Savior, guess what? You have access to these promises we're talking about, of which include, as we're going to read here in Ephesians this event notice he says in verse six um verse three how how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as i wrote afore a few words whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of christ verse six now here's the mystery that the gentiles should be fellow heirs verse nine and to make all men see what is the fellowship of this mystery the mystery of which Christ has the empowerment, the position, the gravitas, the credibility by which he, Christ, through repentance and faith in him, you and I, no matter what our racial backgrounds are, no matter what our gender backgrounds are, can now enter into a relationship with God via Christ. This is important to grasp, brethren. And here he goes on and he says, uh, verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he proposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in which we have boldness and access with confidence by uh, the faith of him. Wherefore, therefore, because of all this, therefore, I desire that you don't get weak, don't faint, don't, don't, don't become in, uh, unconfident about this. This is, this is real stuff. You, you can be secure about this, he says. Therefore, I desire that you faint not, At my tribulations for you, which is your glory, because he was, uh, many will uh, uh, understand, as many scholars do, that he was in jail when he was writing this. For this cause, the cause of what he just wrote about, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, not Trinity, family, of the whole family of God, uh, in this case here, the family in heaven and earth, Is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, this idea of being part of this family, this idea of being changed to where what Christ revealed and exposed us to through his raised body from the dead, Paul takes this same message over to Timothy. And if you want to turn with me here, uh, I'd like to uh, bring your attention to um, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy and in chapter 1. And again, Paul talking to this young evangelist uh, basically states this. He says, um, he talks about how he hopes that he would have faith like his grandmother Lois did in verse 5. And he's encouraging Timothy. In verse 9, he kind of tumbles down to this. Uh, he says here, uh, oh, verse 8, "...be not you therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be you partakers of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God." So Paul's encouraging him, but telling them, you know, heads up, it isn't going to be easy, Timothy. This is not going to be an e- easy task for you to be involved with. Verse 9, though, he says this, "...who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace." which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. See, there's that plan I mentioned uh, and I referenced a little bit. Before the world began, this was all designed and made and constructed. Verse 10 now. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light Through the gospel. In other words, what Paul's telling Timothy here is Christ has given us some information via the events surrounding his life. And part of that was he revealed to us how immortality is indeed achieved or accomplished, the mechanics behind it, if you will, via the manifestation or revelation of his resurrection, of how he achieved immortality. It always amazes me how so many of the Christian folks today in the traditional community tend to read 1 Corinthians 15, which is known to be the resurrection chapter for all intents and purposes. And it's very clear about the mechanics behind what's going on when you read down through that context, if you just read it for what it's worth. But yet somehow come up with this idea that, well, there's an immortal soul residing in you. And that upon your death, you don't really die. <laughs> you go on living, but you change life forms. That's all. You don't really die. You just go from this to this thing that's called an immortal soul, and then you waft off to heaven if you were good, or you woo down to uh, you know, the deeps and the depths of, of planet Earth, uh, forever being confined to running and running for your life, whatever life that is, uh, from these demons in red stocking suits and pitchforks. And, and a lot of that just comes from just plain tradition and even poetry in some cases uh, with regard to um, Dante's Inferno and all of those things. But I want to show you something else. Along the same theme, turn with me over here to the book of Philippians. Turn with me to the book of Philippians because... This is a this theme of changing your metabolism, this theme of metabolic conversion, yes, character must change. That goes without saying. But that's not the whole story. The ultimate achievement, the, the process of conversion will not be completed, let me say it this way, until you are of a different material. That's the ultimate end game, to change you from this destructible flesh and blood that aches and pains us, it bleeds, we've got to take care of it, it requires us to sleep, sustain it with water and food. If we don't, we get a little crazy because we're also uh, uh, chemical-related in our uh, chemo-biological condition. And so if we don't get enough sleep, Depending on how much no sleep we get, we could even start hallucinating and seeing things that, you know, may not exist or may exist. I don't know. But the point of it is you don't want to get yourself overtired and you don't want to get yourself overhungry. But over here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul again talking here in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I write... The same things, this is verse 1, chapter 3, book of Philippians. To me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, and he warns them. He says, beware uh, of people that are, are um, trying to deceive you. And he talks about how he's got credibility, and as much credibility if not more, because he was from uh, the tribe of Benjamin there in verse 5, and circumcised the eighth day. He goes on and talks about all uh, about Christ and how important Jesus is. And he goes on here, and verse 15, he begins to turn the corner a little bit on what he talked about in verse, uh, verse uh, the 14 verses preceding, and says, "Let us therefore, as many as be perfect or mature or full of age, be thus minded, and if anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same things, brethren." Be followers together of me and mark, take note, recognize those which walk so as you have us for an example. In other words, look to others amongst yourselves that you can even model after, so that if you've got issues and problems and uh, lusts of the eyes and flesh and the pride of life that you've been dealing with, and you see somebody amongst your number that's doing a good job this way or that way, that maybe get to know them and understand and try to get to understand how they overcame some of those weaknesses that you yourself find Uh, Also, in similitude, in dealing in your life, because that's what this is all about—of being uh, helpful to each other. Um, Verse 18, he he, uh, runs a parenthesis here by uh, qualifying what he's saying. uh, Why it's so important to mark those that are good, and the reason being, verse 18, he uh, parenthetical uh, statement makes uh, that because there's many who are not good; they're players. They're hypocrites. They're among you, and they want to fool you. They want to trick you into thinking certain things. So beware of these particular ones. But verse 20 now, he says, for our conversation, and that Greek word means basically our community or our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is the vision we all have. We are living on planet Earth. Those of us who are citizens of Canada are citizens of Canada. We have a passport that says we have citizenship in Canada. Or in my case, I've got citizenship in in the USA. Some have other citizenships. But the bottom line is all of these physical citizenships to countries, whether it's Poland or Ukraine or wherever it may be, the bottom line is, no, 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 no. What we have trumps all of those citizenships because in your life, Your vision, my vision, should be on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is our vision and our real passport connection. And that's what we're hoping to aspire to and attempt uh, to accomplish. And hopefully God will award us with that uh, reward. But in this case, Paul continues, because I want to I drive you here to this point that I want to make in verse 21. For Verse 20, now, for our conversation, citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Christ, because that's where he's coming from. He's coming from heaven. He's on a countdown, as a matter of fact, from heaven. Who shall change your low estate, that's what that means. It doesn't mean vile like it's been construed back in the Middle Ages that, you know, the flesh is wicked, you know, and uh, making babies is bad and all this stuff that they made uh, people think and literally would kill people over in many cases and try to extrapolate their souls out of their flesh through torture and all that. And that's history. I'm not... Just making that stuff up. I mean, anybody can look in your history books and find out what some of those very horrific conditions and circumstances imposed upon people who would not con, uh, concede to the, the powers to be. But what this Greek word means is it means a lower estate. In other words, it's not where you want to be yet. It's still in process. It's subs, It's substandard. It's not the standard. The standard you're trying to get to is. The spiritual metabolic, if I can even use that term, sounds convoluted, because I don't know if spirit is metabolic, but the, you know what I'm saying, the spirit material of which uh, we're all aspiring to. And in this case, he says here, as he does, who shall Jesus, when he comes, verse 20, that's the context, verse 21, who shall change our vile body, this is chapter 3, book of Philippians, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And then, of course, let me just bring your attention to this in connection with that uh, as our backdrop. First John, chapter three. First John, chapter three, real quickly here. The apostle says, behold. In his rhetoric here, as he goes down through the dialogue of of his first epistle, he writes, Behold, chapter 3, verse 1, 1 John, back toward the uh, end of the New Testament, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it didn't know him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear. You get this? It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this: we know that when He shall appear, when Jesus shall appear, and you put this in context with Philippians chapter three, there, verse twenty-one, where your vile body will be changed. You put that in context, and in with this, and it says, "But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him." For we shall see him as he is. Every man that has this hope in him sets himself, sanctifies. He sets himself apart. That's what the word purify means. He sanctifies himself with this knowledge. He understands that his life now takes on special meaning. It takes on a more overreaching, overconsuming, in some cases almost, uh, when you think about it, overwhelming concept and understanding of what purpose your life is, the purpose behind it, and what your destiny is. I mean, this information supersedes anything about wafting off to clouds, and playing harps, and, and uh, doing those kinds of traditional things that in your mind are conjured up by many of the traditional teachings uh, that we ourselves Uh, find ourselves oftentimes exposed to so this theme and I'm laying this all out I'm going to go back to some of this in a minute but this theme is consistent throughout the Bible but really becomes prominent in the New Testament it really becomes prominent in the New Testament and I want to submit something to all of you go to John chapter 3 for a moment the gospel of John chapter 3 I'm going to just paraphrase this paraphrase this for the sake of time But I want to share this story with you, perhaps at your own leisure, uh, when you have a little bit of time, you can go through this particular section of Scripture slowly. Go through it slowly. Think about what you're reading and try to put some logic to it. Here you've got a guy named Nicodemus who's an educated Pharisee. As I've often said, this guy's not a knucklehead. He is a well-educated Pharisee. In some cases, it could be even made that he was a teacher of teachers, a leader among the religious leaders. So this guy had his, as they would say, act together. He, because of his reputation, didn't want to be seen with Jesus because Jesus was already being tagged as a rogue. He was already being tagged as a maverick. And certainly, you know, this illegitimate guy who drinks wine and hangs out with prostitutes and robbers and things was not the kind of character you want to be associated with if you've got a reputation to protect. And so, in all due respect, Nicodemus, uh, matter of fact, Bronson James did a sermon uh, titled Nick at Night. <laughs> it's got a cute title, if you ever remember that uh, uh, program, uh, Nick, Nick at Night, you know. <laughs> but it ain't great. It's a bad joke. I won't quit my day job. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, uh, Nicodemus in sneaking, wanted to have a conversation with Jesus because he, and you, you can see in the conversation, there's respect there. He even says, I know you're a man from God. He, he gives him that, that allowance. He tags him with that respect. And he says, so tell me. Tell me about the life after. I want to know about the life after. That's what he says in, the, in, his, in so many words. Uh, let, me, let me real quickly here uh, get to uh, John 3 and uh, share some of this with you. I don't want to spend a lot of time in John 3, but I just want to bring your attention to it because this underscores a lot of the theme that we're talking about with respect to heaven and the promise of the saved, and Jesus commenced it. Jesus initiated this teaching. Jesus initiated this whole concept of being born again, but but not in the terminology of what most traditional evangelicals will want you to believe, in that, you know, you've had an emotional eureka experience and you have come to your coup d'etat, as they say. And so now you're putting your foot down and you're no longer going to smoke. You're no longer going to drink. You're no longer going to speed. You're no longer going to watch too much TV and eat o- overeat. You're, you're going to change your life, whatever it is. Vulgarity, uh, maybe too much card playing. Not that card playing is wrong, but you know what I'm saying. You're going to, you know, you've got this emotional experience and now you're going to turn 180 degrees and walk this way. And walk a different way. Well, That's part of it, of course, in the conversion process. All of us have to come to repentance. We know that. All of us have to accept Christ as our personal Savior. We know that. And all of us have to get baptized. And we know that. But this is not what John 3 is about. That's my point. This is not what John 3 is about. What John 3 is about, I submit to you, is something far more grandiose. Far more mind-blowing. The vision and truth. That Jesus discloses to this guy, Nicodemus, actually had Nicodemus incredulous. Nicodemus, as you go through this conversation, you will see how surprised this guy gets. But at any rate, let me, let me start off here. He says, um, look, uh, the same came to Jesus, verse 2 by night, said unto him, Rabbi. We know you are a teacher come from God. No man can do the things and the miracles that you do except God be with him. Now, I said that that Nicodemus wanted information about life after death because that's what the remaining dialogue is all about. Jesus, with whatever Nicodemus said, which is not written here, responds in a rather curious way. He says right off the bat, Truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever you see verily, verily, that means truly, truly, Jesus is really trying to make a point. He is dead on. In other words, he's serious. He wants to make a point. He's, he's, there's nothing kidding about him. He's not, he's not joking around. He says, Nicodemus, truly, I, I want you to get this point, Nicodemus. Truly, you, listen to me. Listen. Watch my lips. Hear what I'm going to say. I mean, that, that, he's intense. Jesus is intense on him. And so he says here, look, truly, I say to you, Unless a man be ganeo, it means born from above, and it does, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, notice Nicodemus' response. This is is very curious. Nicodemus takes him physically. There's nothing mentally, spiritually, uh, about the way Nicodemus understood Jesus to say what he just said. Nicodemus immediately goes to this biological thinking this kind of metabolic mode of response. And he says, well, now, wait a minute, Jesus. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Well, you know, I don't want to get too picturesque about that, but you know what I'm saying, Uh Here's Nicodemus. I don't know if he was 150 pounds, six foot two, uh, 185 pounds, 225. I don't know, but I know this, and he knew it. He couldn't fit back in there anymore. (laughs) He was just too big. Now, don't you find that curious that this conversation is going in this direction? If this is about an emotional experience, of course, because it wasn't about an emotional experience. This theme of you being changed from this material that bleeds, cuts, and pains us to something that is immortal, can travel at the speed of thought, fly through walls, doesn't have to eat, likes to eat, could eat, but does it because it wants to, not because it has to, is the aspiration of every Christian of which Jesus introduces us right here to this whole idea, this whole concept by this conversation. With Nicodemus notice how he goes down through here truly there he goes again verse five Nicodemus look I want you to get this truly I'm telling you this I say unto you unless you're born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God and in this case you know many people will say well maybe he's referencing you got to be baptized yeah I'm not going to take that argument but also every human being is born what's the first thing that happens to a lady when she has a baby her water breaks or water breaks. You've got to be born of water. We're in a physical discussion here. We're talking about biological things. We're talking about metabolic things. Personally, I kind of think more like that, but that doesn't dismiss the fact that you've got to be born of water, too, in the sense that you've got to be baptized. You've got to be baptized. You've got to go under the water, and you've got to repent and accept Jesus as your personal Savior. But in the context of the physical here, Jesus is saying, look, in order for you to get into the kingdom of God, you can't be a dog you can't be a cat. You've got to be you. And you're going to be born of water first. And then later, the second phase, the second Adam. Remember how Paul uh, characterizes that. Even the first Adam, the second Adam, the first Adam is physical, he's natural. The second Adam is spiritual. That which came first is not that which is spiritual, but that which is physical. That which is natural came first. The first Adam. Because this is the time when the qualifications and the expectations are either met or missed to determine whether or not the second phase can be rewarded or awarded to those that are participating in the event of this salvation process. And it is a process. It's a process, a lifelong process, once you get on uh, and into the program. But notice verse 6 here, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And notice this. Jesus in verse 7 says something again interesting. You just don't read over this stuff. He says, marvel not at this. So I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know this. Something caused Jesus to say, don't be surprised. That's what marvel not means. "Don't, Don't be surprised. So whether Nicodemus responded in body language, you know, like, what are you talking about? You know, because he's a Pharisee. He knows, he knows the Old Testament. He knows from Genesis to Malachi. I mean, he knows that book, the Torah. He knows the prophets. He knows the writings. He's got that down pat. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he may have looked surprised, I don't know, but something causes Jesus to say, look, don't be surprised, marvel not, verse 7, that I said unto you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound thereof. You can't tell where it comes or where it goes, and so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus just told Nicodemus is it's invisible to the human eye. You can see the effect. If I held up a piece of paper and I blew on it, you could see the effect of my breath, but you couldn't see my breath, of course, unless it was 32 degrees outside Fahrenheit, by the way. (laughs) But but you know what I'm saying. You can't see my breath under normal conditions, but you can see the effect of the movement of the paper if I blew on the paper. Jesus is saying the same thing. Look, Nicodemus, you can't see this material, but where it goes you'll know because of certain events or certain effects that it can cause and generate. And look what Nicodemus does. Nicodemus in verse 9 says... How can these things be? What are you telling me? Jesus, have you lost your mind? Because he knew Jesus was, a, you know, being accused of a rabbi. Jesus was a Jew. He's from the tribe of Judah. These are two Jews talking. <laughs> and, and he's saying, have you lost your mind? What? Well, how can these things be, Jesus? This is quite, quite the story. And so the, the bottom line here is, brethren, that you begin to see that It is certainly no surprise when Paul, over here in 2 Corinthians, and again, I want to show you something. 2 Corinthians, sometimes we just read over this stuff and we don't really take note of it, but I want to bring your attention back to chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. uh, And we'll get to the verse here in a moment, but let me just characterize chapter 3 real quickly here in the sense that it, that is chapter 3, compares the Old Testament with the New Testament. And what uh, what Paul's trying to show here is the value and the reason why many of the circumcision do not understand the truths behind Christ. And he's, he's characterizing it as a veil of Moses, the veil of Moses. And until that veil is removed and Jesus is revealed, they are blinded to the value of Christ and what he represents. Notice this, though. He goes on here and he says, Uh, But their minds, talking about these that we just mentioned, were blinded for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, if they would accept Christ. And understand he is the extension, he is the consummation of what the Old Testament pointed to. If they would understand that, the veil of the Old Testament, the clarity of the Old Testament would come home to them. But until they do, guess what? They're clouded. They're clouded in their, perce- uh, in their perception. And so he says here, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless... When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that Spirit. The Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. It's good to be a human being. It's not bad to be a human being. You are in a much more glorious spot with your potential and destiny ahead of you of what you can have if you will repent and accept Christ as your personal Savior comparably to any animal, insect, amoeba, you know, virus or bacteria. You are very, very special in the eyes of God. And here he says, We behold as in a glass uh, darkly the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as, and it says in my King James, by the Spirit of the Lord, but it also could be, the syntax could be in the Greek, uh, construed this way, even as of the Lord, the Spirit. Because today, Jesus at the right hand of the Father is in fact a Spirit. He is uh, one who does, uh, in, in many respects, um, represent the full program's completion in the sense that he has achieved the ultimate conversion of living 33 and a half years in the flesh and then being, through the resurrection, converted to this spiritual form of which he had before his human birth. Romans 8, again, the theme continues. And here in Romans 8, and I break uh, together here in... Um, Verse 18, I reckon the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. The earnest expectation of mankind waits for the resurrection of those humans who will be resurrected and changed A manifestation. That's what it's talking about here. The manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject subject to guilt or subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subject the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty... Of the children of God. And that's a veiled comment, brethren, of being converted from the physical to the spiritual. What that's all about right there is that because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now, and not only they, but we ourselves also. Which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, or the adoption to witness, or if you forget to wit because it was inserted by the translators, forget it and skip over it, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The gospel news, brethren is all about embodiment. It's not about disembodied spirits wafting off to heaven or being eternally tormented and punished in a immortal state of condition like an immortal soul of some sort where it can feel pain. It's not about that. What the Bible's all about is you are either embodied in flesh or you're embodied in spirit. It's one or the other at the time. And ultimately, when it all comes down at the end of the day, the bottom line is it's about life or it's about death. It's not about eternally living and being eternally punished. Because there's no message in your Bible about eternal punishing. There is a message about punishment. But there is no message about eternal punishing in your Bible. That is purely a misappropriation and mischaracterization of what the Bible has to say that has been an outgrowth of many pagan many pagan uh, teachings going all the way back, you can make the case, to Babylon and Nimrod and all of those characters that construed things to be more self-adorning and self-worshipping for themselves and their own families. But in this particular case... Your Bible is all about that. So it's either physical bodies or spiritual bodies. And you're either alive in a physical body or you're alive in a spiritual body or you're dead in a physical body or you're dead. I didn't say spiritual body. Dead. The only way out of this condition we're in alive is to repent of our sins, accept Christ as our Savior, and get baptized. That's the way out. Vishnu is not going to help you. Buddha is not going to help you. Mohammed is not going to help you. The only name by which mankind can be saved. And that's why people hate Christians so much. They hate us as much as the Jews. Because on the physical level, the Jews represent that last connection to the tribes of Israel. They're the last remaining tribes, and Satan the devil hates that representation because they add validity to this book. They make a reality check to this book that validates the book. There's nothing more that Satan the devil would like to have is to stamp out that whole group of people. But on a very close second, if not neck and neck, in the same sharing the number one position, are Christians today. And true Christians are really the cream of the crop, as far as targets are concerned for Satan the devil. Because you know too much. You know too much for those of you who understand these particular truths. So, what I'm proposing here, for those of you who may find some of this rather new, is that those that are good, even today, spiritual giants that we know, uh, for instance, David, I submit to you, are still in the grave. Waiting for their resurrection. Can I prove that? Yes, I can. Over here in Acts chapter 2. Over here in Acts chapter 2, just so you're sure I'm not making this up. Chapter 2 in the book of Acts. We read here a sermon that Peter is actually preaching. And this was one of his, uh, actually it was his first sermon. He says uh, in this particular case, in verse uh, 29, in the course of this presentation, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Well, you may say, well, all right, Bill, I get that. And, of course, they maybe knew where his grave was. You know, and that's, I, I can understand they knew where his sepulcher was. Well, read on here. Uh, verse Verse uh, 31. He's seen this before, spoke of a resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. We're going to come back to some of this in part two. Uh, So I'm going to skip over this because that's worth uh, parking ourselves for a little bit, but we're not going to do it right now uh, due to the fact of time here. I want to stay focused on where I'm going with this. Verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we all uh, are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. In other words, what Peter is saying is... Through Christ is the access of this resurrection. When you analyze his presentation and his particular sermon here, you will see that he's bringing attention to Christ as the venue by which you can attain this, what's called the resurrection. And then he portrays a point well made to illustrate what he's saying is true, that you have to have Christ to achieve the resurrection. He states this, For David, verse 34, chapter 2, book of Acts, is not ascended into the heavens. But he has himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit uh, you at my right hand. And he quotes Psalms 110, verse 1, until I make your foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and um, Christ. So right here, we're told David is not ascended into the heavens. And you would think for sure that if anybody, a man after God's own heart, would be in heaven today, King David, you would think, would be there. But scripturally speaking, you cannot prove it. Actually, you can disprove it. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't fit the, the um, dialogue of the traditional Christian thought. Because if I would go to any traditional Protestant minister, sit down with him, which we hope to do here in a documentary that we're building uh, here uh, and, and putting together, and I ask him, tell me, if David's not in heaven, why not? Why isn't he in heaven? Could we be missing something here to see what his response is? What do you do with the scripture? How do, you, how do you analyze it? How do you deal with it from the perspective of if you die? And David, of all things, I mean, he was, a, he was definitely considered to be one with a good report with God. God even gave him the stamp of approval by telling him he was a man after his own heart. You would think if anybody's in heaven, David would be. But here the Bible is very clear to say that he's not. No, actually, there is... Timing associated with all of this. And in John chapter 5, I want to bring your attention over here to John chapter 5. The fact of it is, everybody, not just David, everybody, figuratively, because I get it, if you're eaten by a shark or you were blown up in Hiroshima, there's not much left of you. You You were either digested by the shark or you were blown into smithereens in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. I, I get that. People that were in 9-11 airplanes, you know, there, there were very minimal amounts of their bodies found. Some bodies were never even found because they just vaporized in the heat uh, of the tragedy. My point, though, is, figuratively speaking, the grave being used to say the dead people, dead people in this particular case. Here, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 25, Uh, where we read this particular case. Let's go to 24, because he says it again. Truly I say unto you. He says it again twice. Truly, truly. He's trying to make a point here. This is very important. We need to read carefully. Don't speed read these sections when you see verily, verily. I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me, that's the Father, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death. Unto life. Now, I'm going to add something to that here, he says. Verily, verily, he says it again, a second time. In other words, he's saying, stay with me on this. Listen up. I'm still intense here. Truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. That's me. That's him, Jesus. He's saying, they're going to hear my voice. I'm the Son of God. He said it over and over throughout the Bible. In one case, he said, keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody who you think I am because you didn't want the attention at that time. But he says here, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at CGIBurlington.org.